Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome, seekers of knowledge, people who quest on the internet to find out things, meet people, hear conversations. You're here once again. That means that the earth is still rotating and gravity still works which are both good things. I don't like to attach value to things that happen in the universe, calling them good and bad, but I'll go ahead and do it in this case. On today's show, we're going to have a very special guest, a good friend of mine, Daniel Holloway, my former six-day partner. Daniel is a professional cyclist who races for Texas Roadhouse and is now a 20-time U.S. national champion, a Pan Am Games gold medalist, and a member of the U.S. national long team for the now 2021 Olympics in Tokyo. I met Daniel when he was a junior racing on the track sometime around 2004, question mark. It's about right, right? Years later, when I had the opportunity to race some of the European six days, I needed a partner slash sidekick. But there's a lot to tell in that story. And so Daniel ended up being the man, or at the time, kid for the job. He was one of the youngest riders in the field at our first six-day in Dortmund, Germany, and I was one of the older riders in the peloton, so we made quite a dynamic duo. I think it's quite accurate also to say that we really had no idea what the hell we were doing. Together, we stumbled our way through four seasons of racing sixes, World Cups, and a couple World Championships together. We had wins, we had crashes, we had DNFs, lots of laughs, and one moment that was pretty close to a straight-up fistfight. I thought having Daniel on the show would be a perfect excuse to tell some hopefully entertaining stories and also to help my audience understand the archaic and iconic world of European six-day racing. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for making the time today. Absolutely. Cool. So let's dig in. Tell us, tell us your background. Yeah, well, like born in Texas, moved to California after a few years, um, and then just grew up speed skating. That was just kind of the family sport. Um, that my parents did it, my sister did it, you know, and I was just like, you know, the next one in line that as soon as I could walk, I was in skates and, you know, just became kind of a rink rat and we were there all the time and mm-hmm. did roller skates. And then kind of the next version was speed skating. It kind of opened up a little new community, faster speeds. And I think, you know, that was the first inkling of my dad opening the door and kind of laying the foundation of like, this is a sport that's in the Olympics. So if you're good enough and you do the work and you put yourself there, that's an opportunity for you if, if everything lines up, right? So roller skating was never going to be in the Olympics. Mm. Ice skating is. So here's a sport that can get you there. You know, it's something he never got really the opportunity to do. And like as a as a father, right? Like you're just supposed to open doors that you never had um, for your kids. And so right. that's what, what he did. And so we went speed skating and it was even faster than roller skating. So I was addicted. I was like, I don't ever want to go back to the rink. I, I you know. I love the ice. And then it got to a point living in California, there's the ice quality is only so good. Um, there's only so much activity. Like get and out so, of the house, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And <laughs> so a friend of ours that was using speed skating as cross training raced the track, Susie Tignor, Mighty Mouse. You know, she's definitely a legend of, of the sport, Hellier Velodrome. And she's like, oh, I got a bike you guys can borrow, go try it. Um, so Saturday morning, Hellier session. And I had like 94 inches on which for a 13-year-old kid is massive, you know. And 
I just enjoyed myself. My dad's like, you're going to be really sore tomorrow. I was like, I don't care. I'm, this is fun. way too fun. Yeah. And I just was like smashing people and the, it was exponentially faster than skating. And mm. so right then I was like addicted to the, just the speed alone, not necessarily mm. the track itself or the genre. It was just like bikes are faster than skating. This is, I like this. So it was the speed that really appealed to you and draw you, drew you in. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so that was like the beginning of the end of speed skating. Yeah, I did speed skate for another four or five years um, in the winter to then cross train for cycling. <laughs> um, it was a really easy transition for, for me to do. And, you know, being soft Californian, it was like it was raining. I was like, oh, I'm not riding. Let's go skating. Um, so I did that. And then I had a really bad crash when I was 18 um, skating and like really jacked up my back. And um, that was kind of like the life. I think one of the last times I really skated fast. Um, or like for practice or training or anything like that. And it was full-time bikes from there. Mm. Yeah. And then it just took off. So really you got your start in the sport just through a family friend that just said, Hey, come out and try this. And you agreed and yeah, cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So easy transition and yeah, happened to be another, uh, you know, I think only in hindsight do we know there was like an Olympic pitcher, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like my dad beating it down my throat that like, you're going to go to the Olympics cause I'm doing all this for you. It was just like. No, if you, it's 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 an open door that if you choose to travel through, mm-hmm. that's your choice, you know. But he worked his ass off um, and provided endless opportunities for me to succeed in sport. And one was speed skating, and then that transitioned in, into cycling. And yeah, just laid such a, a strong foundation for me to just build my you know career off of. Mm-hmm. And then you, you so you started racing more and more. And one of your first big teams was Garmin Chipotle as a young rider, right? Yeah, it was originally called VMG. Right. Um, it was like the second year of it. When I was 19, I went to Tulsa Tough with Dave McCook. Um, he was kind of my local mentor. Um, you know, growing up, you know, on the track, we had the same coach, uh, Freed Abraham, uh, for, for track racing. And so Dave really took me under his wing um, from just from like a bike racing standpoint. Like this is bike racing 101 mm. and just tips and tricks and how to get out of this hole, how to create that gap, you know, like all these different things that are so hands-on that if you don't get, you never learn. And so super thankful for that. And so, yeah, as I got older, we traveled a little more, to, you know, more races. And he's like, dude, there's this race in Tulsa that's got a ton of money. It's amateur only. Let's go, mm-hmm. you know. And so he organized everything, set up the host housing. And, um, you know, we, we went and just like had a ton of fun and I ended up winning the overall. I nice. got like a second, third, and a fourth. Um, and I did, by happenstance, I didn't know, but Chan McRae was there at the time with his wife. And Chan was going to be in charge of the new VMG slash national team slash future Garmin under development team. And so good performance on the right day in front of the right people opened a door and, you know, laid the, the path that became, you know, the Garmin relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Chan saw you race and was impressed with your results there. And was that kind of your first sort of NRC level race or I don't know if Tulsa was NRC back then or if NRC was a thing or. Yeah. I mean, it was more or less my, my first big out of California, out of the region race. So when I showed up, it's like, I didn't know who I was racing against and Kirk Alberts is there and Carl Bordine and, you know, all the hitters, you know, of the cat one field of North America were Mm. pretty much there. And I was, you know, a relatively, you know, unknown 19-year-old, you know, kicking around okay. on the podium and ended up winning the overall. <laughs> nice. 
<laughs> so it worked out well. That's cool. <laughs> and just so in case people aren't familiar, Tulsa Tufts a four-day series in Oklahoma that's – It's three days. Yeah. Oh, it's three days. Yeah, oh, Friday, okay. Saturday, Sunday. One of the ones I've never done, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, never made it to Tulsa. Yeah. And it was kind of infamous for having huge prize lists back then until it's sort of there were a couple of years where the amateurs had the run of the field until the pros started to figure it out, right? And yeah, I mean, it's it was cat, cat one or cat two, like, you know, amateur only for a couple of years. And then they opened the, you know, the doors for everybody. Mm. Um, and that was the year, excuse me, that was 2008, I think. Uh, or 2009 when Toyota United, I think, was the first year they showed up. Yeah. And they laid the smackdown. And on the first night, it was five of their six-man team and me, and we lapped the field. And I was just the whole time just praying, like, guys, just please ignore me. Just like, I'm just here. For, like, I uh, just won't get in the way. I won't do anything. I just need to hang on. And I was, you know, chin to stem for <laughs> 60 minutes riding behind Blackgrove and Hilton Clark and Sean Sullivan or whoever that squad was. And it was just like, oh, this is, all right, this is, like, starting to get big time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a moment like that years and years ago at the Colorado State Road Championships. I ended up in a breakaway. This is when it was like, go straight for 30 miles. Hit the cone, turn around. Take a right turn, <laughs> go straight for 30 miles, hit the cone. And it was way out east, like halfway to Kansas. So just howling, brutal wind. So the field shatters in like 800 meters from the line. And I end up in the league group, which is myself and three Coors Light riders. <laughs> I think it was Engelman, Kiefel, and Scott Moniger. Oh. <laughs> Same. I'm just for like... The next, you know, 118 miles just going, guys, please don't leave me out here. I will literally get eaten by coyotes because <laughs> there's just no one behind you for, you know, the field's just totally nuked. Yeah. And uh, they they graciously let me go to the line and and Scott even didn't care and let me get oh, a bronze. Nice. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's funny, but similar. Yeah. yeah. Similar type deal. And so from there, like, you know, my career kind of, you know, took off. I mean, the year before I rode for Lombardi Sports, um, like as a 19 year old and Went to Super Week, went to, um, yeah, that year was Toad, uh, or not Toad, um, Tulsa, and did a couple of things where, you know, guys were like, you've got to go get exposure. You know, the, the elite guys on Lombardi Sports were like, you just got to go get experience and see what these races are like. And I just remember, yeah, being at Super Week when it was Super Week and it was 100K crits and yeah. banging bars with, you know, um, Huff, Friedman, Jackson Stewart, mm-hmm. like these guys that, were just absolute hitters and they go like, oh, this is where we're going to go make some money because they had a you know spot in their schedule. And I just remember a couple crits where I was just like good enough to start getting in the way with like eight to go, seven to go, and Huff just losing his mind. He's like, and he knew me from the track. was just, oh, like, just, just get out of here. Just get behind me. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and it was, you know, learning from Dave and, you know, some other guys was like, yeah, I'm good enough to be in the fight. But if you're just banging bars, you're not learning anything. Mm. And so my mindset was like, okay, Huff acknowledges me. He's aware. He says, go behind me. So if I'm just falling off, I was like, what's Huff doing? Like Huff's winning these things. Mm. So I can't watch what he's doing if I'm riding beside him. Right. Make it, you know, fighting for my life. But if I can tuck in in the draft and go, okay, what's he doing here? What's he doing there? And saying. Learn from his decisions. Learn, learn from his decision making. Yeah. And all that stuff. And really, that was my mindset when I first hit that level by myself was like, just follow. Like all you mm-hmm. can do is learn from here, right? Mm-hmm. Like an opportunities will present themselves and you'll have that good day when, you know, like you get eighth and you're like, oh, fuck. If I could have just, I could have got fourth, but yep. you know, 
But I made this one little error or, or and it's not that the errors like I was too far back, right? Like everybody's like, I would have won, but I was 10th. And you're like, well, yeah, it's because <laughs> you never spent, you know. Welcome to bike racing. 12 months following the guys winning. Right. To get the nuances, right? All you're doing is fighting, fighting, fighting. And then you end up being too tired and getting whatever mm. result you get instead of winning. Mm. So my mindset was just learn, learn, learn. And when the legs do click, it's like I've got all the tools in the toolbox to make it easy. Yeah. You know, and so. I had was very fortunate that I just, you know, was able to learn from these guys in these races really quick mm. um, and, and put it to use, you know, relatively quickly after after those experiences. And so that year I went to like Critnats, you know, Downers Grove and all that stuff and just got it absolutely handed to me, mm. you know, but it was a learning experience. And the next year I won. Nice. <laughs> you nice. know, so it's just it was a, a short time period, but it was all focused on learning and not necessarily winning. You know, because I had a long-term vision of wanting to be in the sport. Mm. You know, it wasn't like I'm just going to make a wave and see how long it lasts. It's like, uh, no, this is my career. I want this one 10, 12 years. You've got to learn before you can win. Yep. You know, and so that that's what's carried me so long, I think, versus I feel like a new generation that just has ultimate horsepower, but no skill set, no knowledge. And they get themselves into situations, and then they get fourth. Yeah. And they get third, and they get fourth. And, they, and it's like they're only – a millimeter away from winning but they don't know over it. and over and over they're, again they don't know they're just doing more intervals and training yeah. harder because they think and, they need to be stronger yeah and so blunt force just, trauma yeah and yeah. so and it always becomes that thing was where it's like mm. you know the the young one becomes stronger than the trainer and it's just like oh well i'm stronger than you so i don't need to listen right and inevitably in cycling that's such a fast transition it's like oh, i can climb faster and he's like okay well i know how to survive so what does it matter if you go up this thing four minutes faster than me right it doesn't because right. that doesn't win races, mm. <laughs> you know, that makes fast times up hills, but mm. it doesn't get you results at the end of the day, you know, for yeah. North American racing. And, you know, a lot of that transitional European racing, mm -hmm. you know, doing, it doesn't, surviving is the ultimate key to success. A little Belgian races, a little Dutch races, yeah. in little your, French races. Yeah. In your first couple of years in Europe, like if you can't survive, mm. you'll never make it to the next level you just have to survive so if you go with that survival toolbox to europe yeah it'll click it'll happen for you so much better than becoming the ultimate fitness god mm. and going over there with no no survival box right like you're you're dead like it's just uh it's just not gonna happen for you and so you get see, you see a lot of guys get chewed up and spit out pretty pretty fast. pretty quickly yeah yeah i had a, a parallel lesson i think in 01 i went to super week back so just to paint the picture, like Toad, which is the um, Tour of America's Dairyland now, is a series of crits in Wisconsin. They go, it's like one per city. And I think they're about an hour hour and change for most of the pro races now, right? They're a lot, they're more. They're a lot shorter than they used to be. Yeah. They used to be 100K. Pretty much every race was 100K. Yeah. And so it was really more like a Kermis style race. Yeah. And some of the circuits were quite big. Some of them had pretty big hills in them. And it was fun racing. And then, you know, it was always in July. So basically the European riders who didn't make the tour team would come over and just slaughter people, you know, come to meet pretty American girls and eat barbecue <laughs> and smash hundred K crits. And so the fields were, I remember the fields being 150, 170 riders, you know, single file strung out. The first year I went as a junior, I watched a couple one, two races and my job was just on the ground the entire time. I was like, I can't believe how fast these guys are going. Then at the end of that, Super week, I realized that no one would know the difference if I just started one of them. 
because I had already paid an entry fee for the last day. So instead of starting the junior race, I just showed up to the one's dues. And I was the guy at the back, like literally caboose, just chin to stem the entire race. And that was my first door opening. Like the only way I'm going to survive this is if I go through every corner three miles an hour faster than everyone else. That's the only, I do not have the horsepower and I barely pulled it off, like crossed the line, just shattered. (laughs) Then fast forward to 01 and I'm on Shackley or excuse me, I'm riding for prime Alliance and, and we rode for Jonas Carney the entire series. He was in the overall, I had the overall locked up for the last day, which is always Whitefish Bay, right? Yeah. And so he had the overall locked up. Like it, mathematically, no one could beat him. So he was like, Colby, you've been working really hard all week. You feel fresh today? I was like, yeah. He was like, let's see what happens. Maybe you'll have a chance to win today. I was like, okay. You know, he's like, I want to pay you back. You've been working for me all week or for three weeks, basically. And so we're doing our thing and I get in the break and we lap the field. I think it was like seven or eight minute break. I don't remember. And then we get back in the Peloton and, and I come up to Jonas. He's like, how you doing? I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. But you know, there's some quick guys in this group that made the lap with me. I need to do something. I got to get away from him. I'm going to get beat. He was like, just relax, follow me. And I didn't realize what I, you know, don't, you don't know what you don't know, but I didn't know at that point how, how much energy I used trying to do exactly what you were just describing, which is like bang bars, fight, always be in some position that I thought I needed to be in. And I followed Jonas's wheel and for a lap, I was just like blown away. I was like, I can't believe how easy this is. Yeah. He just floats around the course, always literally finding the path of least resistance. Like he's literally riding on the principle of minimum effective dose. Yeah. Like, and he just fills holes, moves up whenever he can. And somehow he's always like 12th wheel, like 12th to 18th wheel, just like doing this little effortless washing machine cycle. So just far enough back so we can see everything that's happening, see who's attacking, see who's responding, react if he needs to, but most of the time he just watches, watches, watches. And he ended up leading me out and I won the field sprint, which is like, (laughs) I mean, come on. (laughs) Now, this was the last day of the race. And to be fair, the field sprint wasn't as heavily contested because most guys were pretty tired and the guys in the break were the ones doing it. But don't take it away from yourself. Don't take it away from yourself. I'm just being straight up. (laughs) But two guys from the break did get away. So I ended up getting third, I think, if I remember right, or fourth or something like that. So anyway, it was like, it was a big learning experience for me to follow Jonas's wheel and realize what a universe that was. Because I'm always Mr. Like, my whole job for that team was, you know, weld things together, chase down breaks, be reactive, try to get in the break, see if it's going to work, screw it up if it's not, or chase things down, et cetera. That was just not my mindset. I'd never been in that conservation oriented like I'm way, I'm the fastest guy in the Peloton. That's basically how Jonas rode. He most of the time he's like, I'm just the fastest guy in this Peloton. So if you guys don't get away from me, when we get to the line, you're dead meat. And he yeah. just went that way, went into every race that way. And he wasn't always right, but he definitely won a lot of races with that tactic. And yeah. if the break got away, the break got away. He's like, oh, I'll just go try it again tomorrow. Yeah. So it's a very totally flip-flop from my, like, I'm not a sprinter. I have to win by being a tough guy and blunt force trauma kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, we we had a guy on the, on Texas Roadhouse a couple of years ago, and in Rock Hill they made this like bike course, and we raced on it, and it had you know some elevation gain. It was very you know just never like really straight, just kind of like always moving, and then like one climb with a U turn, and like all those bike hard. courses tend to be right, <laughs> yeah, like, never straight, strange. kind of um, kind of amoeba shaped corners, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so. I was like active in the beginning and then I was like, okay, I need to go take a, take a break and, you know, started like floating back and my teammate was just like killing himself to ride 60th. And I just watched him for a couple laps and I was like, this is 
awful to watch. And I'm just seeing him struggle and struggle and struggle. And you could see that he's outworking anybody in the field, but not going anywhere. And I went up to him and was like, hey, dude, just follow me. Like, just stay on my wheel. We're going to, like, move up and just watch the lines I'm riding and, and all that stuff. And you could see after the race, we looked at his file. And you could see the moment in time I picked him up. Nice. His heart rate dropped, like, 12 beats. His power just totally smoothed out. So many yep. less, you know, big, big spikes and coasts. And his normalized and, power probably went way down. And so everything, and he's just like, dude, my life changed. Like that was, <laughs> I didn't know that that's how to do it. Mm. And it was a lot of fun working with him because he would go back to just caveman and just go like really strong, really hard. Yeah. And then some, you know, when he had to go survival mode, he remembered what I showed him. Mm-hmm. And he could see that, but it wasn't like, no, this is default. Default is survival, and it's not a negative. To be in survival mode is not a negative not thing at all. whatsoever. Not at all. Right? And so, um, but yeah, that was like one of the big instances like with, you know, all the tools we have now. It's like, oh, yeah, here's this moment in time that your heart rate immediately dropped. Yeah. You know, and it was you, we moved up and like you were able to like be productive into the end of this race even considering all the damage you did to yourself for no good reason. Right. <laughs> and so I just don't think a lot of guys are taking the time to learn that stuff and follow. Mm-hmm. They're so thinking that like that one result's going to change their whole career, their their whole year versus like, man, if I just learn some things, yeah, then the rest of the time I do this, it's going to be so much more enjoyable, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I got to say, like, that's a matter of perspective because we, for some reason, guys who are in that mindset tend to race or sometimes women race that way in every race they enter. But the reality is it's like, let's take a, a step back here. Yeah. You're talking about the Louisville criterion, like yeah. cool race, local bike race, whatever, you yeah. know, good turnout. But if you win this race solo, no, you're not going to get a contract with, you Anybody. know, anyone exactly now if it's national championships maybe a different story but not even necessarily in the u.s you know anymore right yeah so So. yeah it's a it's a shifting Mm. dynamic in the in the u.s peloton and the u.s racing scene it's gonna be interesting to see where it ends up in the next five years really and what carries weight and what doesn't agree as far as racing you know the level of racing the times that exist you know rallies Mm. slowly transitioning out of the u.s and into europe Mm-hmm. you know, as far as with their presence. And then after them, there's Jelly Bellies now and a U23 development program. And, mm-hmm. you know, Danny's getting those guys experience in Asia and, you know, Mexico, South America. They're now sponsored by Wildlife, right? Generation something? Yeah. yeah it's wildlife. got Wildlife in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's... St. and Colby Lang. Yeah. So the, the state of the domestic Peloton is nowhere was what it was five years ago, let alone 10 years ago that you can really gauge talent, yeah. depth, skill, you know, to say like, Oh yeah, you had a really good six months in North America by doing exit Demas, then Redlands. And then, you know, these staples of what, you know, Gila, Redlands, Bose, yeah. Cascade, you know, half that, those races are gone now. Yeah. And yeah. even if they do exist, the field is way different that even if you go win, Gila doesn't carry the same weight as it did 10 years ago. Agreed. You know, and so there's that still, you know, mixed attitude that you have this coaches that are coaching guys that are, Gila's a big deal. You got to go win it, mm-hmm. right? For for them and their generation, it did, but it doesn't anymore. And so you're getting like this, the new guys are getting this mixed information, mm-hmm. you know, without like the old guard learning the new rules <laughs> of, 
of you know what's important to well to, I don't want to teams skip ahead but that's actually a perfect segue into six, <laughs> the world of six days yeah I mean I think that there literally there is no more old school kind of institution than a proper six day and I dare I say you and I got in at the last possible moment after decades of this style of everything about it not just the actual race event but like the swannies the mechanics how the system worked you know yeah how you climb the ladder how you got your ass kicked at times if you did the wrong thing like all those so I, i'd like to unpack that for sure but before we get there i would like you to just paint the picture a little bit if you could before we go to europe stay in the u.s you know the normal order um <laughs> Tell us just a bit about how you had to really battle United Healthcare when they were dominant and you raced, it was like two seasons at least where you were just pretty much solo warrior against those guys, right? Like uh, 2014 and 15 was like, I had gone through my domestic pro teams trying to make pro tour journey. Um, and in 2012, came back from the UK, like super depressed um, no contract in hand, you know, and, just kind of lost in the world. And tell us the team you rode um, for in the UK that year. That was Raleigh. Yep. Um, and so good experience, you know, like a lot of that jump was the conversations we had that there was going to be European opportunities and this was the roster and this is where we see you fitting in. It was just like, I'm ready for this transition. Like this is, this is the door that I needed and I'm going to go work and prove that these are the things. And you just started off well went to mexico won a stage of you know vuelta mexico um which was really good and then once we got back to the uk it was like oh yeah this we're not going to belgium we're not going to france and it's like we're just doing the uk stuff and it was like a bit of a kick in the dick and it's just like well that's not what i came here for mm. you know and and then all of a sudden the inner team politics and you know six-man rosters 10-man team mm. and you know living in a house with other guys that train different ways that weren't getting race starts, then started like sending, you know, messages up the gossip ladder of, yep, doesn't ride his bike, he doesn't do the same intervals, we drop him on climbs. And it's like, what does that have to do with anything about being successful on, on race day? Mm. You know, and there it does correlate, right? Like you have to go put in the work. Mm -hmm. But just because you go up a climb faster than another guy doesn't mean it can't be productive on Sunday. Right. Um, and so started to have that battle <clears throat> to fight and I just didn't have the energy for it. Mm. So started not racing and then had kind of, bunch of just bs and left the, the left really depressed mike's bikes gave me a killer opportunity to say come out have fun mentor some guys you know it's, it's all on you how you want to take this but the door's open and end up just like having a kick-ass season riding really well getting some really good results um so this was 2014 you said 2013 13 okay and then you know that got the attention of chad hartley who was running at the time with share care which turned into athlete octane yep um for 14 it was like hey dude the gig is we're racing crits, we're making money, and we're in charge. You know, the guy who's sponsoring us doesn't have anything, doesn't want us to see us at any particular races. Mm -hmm. He just wants us flying the flag, having fun, getting results. So let's go do it. You know, there's some secret races that have good money, not strong fields. And at that time, part of the job was making money. Like, you can't, can't eat without money. Right. So it was just like it was – that was the mentality. It's like, we're going to go to the big races, but we're also going to go like to some smaller hidden gyms and make money. Mm -hmm. um, and in, during that, you know, that reign was United Healthcare was on like a killer win streak. They were like undefeated for like two and a half seasons up to that point. Um, and so, you know, I've 
Chad gave me some info. I was like, hey, this is how they've been riding. And I, and I went into that watching from afar because I was in the UK at that time. And the next year was, you know, fully amateur in California. And you just see all the results and some videos. And you're like, these guys are kicking ass. And I haven't raced at that level in two years. I don't know how I'd fit mm. in. You know, is it possible these guys look, you know, to be Well, they weren't just winning. They were like stacking. Yeah, like, like one through four, yeah, six, six out of nine, the top ten. You know, right. like, uh, right. um, and they could almost pick who won on the day. And, yeah. yeah. And so they had a system that they figured out that worked for them. Um, and so. And the strength. Yeah. They, they definitely team. had the depth, no doubt, to run the gamut, however mm-hmm. they wanted to do it. And I think the first <laughs> encounter with those guys was at Speed Week that year. And we did Charlotte. Um, and I was off the front in a breakaway with, you know, Dion Smith and Sergio Hernandez and a couple really strong guys. And it was getting down to, like, the end, eight laps-ish to go. Um, and the brakes started looking at each other, and I was just like, I'm going to hit out, you know, and just ride. And my gap stayed the same, kept going. I was like, oh, man, like, this is getting close to the end, and the gap has not come down. And they ended up catching me with, like, a lap to go, mm. you know, something like that. But it gave me the confidence to be like, oh, this isn't a crazy level. You know, like, yeah, they chased me down and it was six guys plus whatever help they may or may not have had. But like, I'm in the ballpark here, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we went to Belmont the next day and I think I podium that race, you know, I was like, oh man, I can, it's not that bad. Right now I can really start looking at how do how do you pick it apart? Like what's, what game are they playing and what rules do I need to develop for myself to, to win? Mm -hmm. And so with Chad and the rest of the guys at Athlete Octane, it was more or less kind of the reverse lead out, you know, is put me in front of our train on the back of UHC and then create a line or a bubble around me so I didn't have to fight. Yep. Because you could watch time and time again where it was Jake Keogh on the back who can handle his bike insane and 10 different dudes fighting for his wheel. Right. You know, so anybody in front of him was just like gravy train, nose breathing, no problems, no fighting, no anything. Mm. And they could ride 45K an hour. And all of a sudden the Peloton's mindset was like, we have to stay behind it because there's six guys the same color yes. riding in a line. And it was like, yeah, you can't just go dive bomb in the middle of it, but you can attack it. Mm-hmm. You can get four or five guys go around it, you know, but somehow the idea shift is like, we have to stay behind the lead out. Mm. And so they learned to ride the minimum speed required Right. To not get messed with. Right. And then you had 20 guys fighting for one wheel getting tired. Angry hornet's nest behind yeah. them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden when, you know, Hedgeberry and Brad White decide to go, okay, it's go time and take it up to 60K an hour, every dude was tired. And it was luck of the draw of when they hit the gas and you were on the wheel, that's you how it, it shuffled yep. out. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was no coming back from that big of an acceleration mm. with that short of time left in the race. And so we looked at it as like, okay, that's, that's what they're going to do. So our plan is give you the same ride that they're giving their guys. And so I had four defenders, basically two on each side, that I would stick on that UHC train. And I had, you know, bodyguards just wailing on people. Nice. So I didn't have to fight. So I didn't have to do that work. And as soon as we got that rhythm, as soon as we, you know, figured that out, I started being successful. You know, the team started being successful as being the the team beating UHC, Mm -hmm. really challenging them, making them – race to the line, not podium sweeping, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that just kind of rolled over into into 15. Um, it's funny talking about that year with Adrian, right? Because then we were, like, 
not enemies, but we were racing against each you other. You were on opposite teams. Now opposite you're Madison teams. partners. Yeah, now yeah. we're Madison partners. And it's like, yeah. hey, man, what what was your recount? What, was right. you, what, was your, what were you guys thinking this year? And he's got all these, you know, laundry list of excuses of why they weren't riding well. And it's like, oh, well, it's only because this, this, and this that, that you could do that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> come on, bro. Don't, you can't do that. You saw <laughs> firsthand what happened. <laughs> right. Um, so it was interesting now to come full circle with him and, and relive some of those races, uh, racing against each other and, and stuff yeah. like that, which is yeah. great fun. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, I mean, that was That's good. Cool. I, I never stopped learning because it's, you know, they that team was led by Hilton Clark, which was – you know, arguably one of the best, you know, North American, North American tacticians that have done it. You know, he's, he's a crit master. And yeah. so they had their strategy. It worked, you know, they, but as soon as I came into the fold, they had to develop new strategies, new tactics, kind of, you know, maybe give up a podium run and protect the win, you know? So they were happy with first and third, fifth, seventh, ninth, you know, cause not many other guys could get around him. Right. But protecting the win was, was key, and it was they're adapting while I'm adapting. And so that was really good fun to know that you're going to go to a race, and, like, it was really a thinking man's game, mm. you know, and how do you how do you really exploit their program against them, you know, and how can you get them to break their own rules to favor you? And it was really difficult. You know, they were an ironclad ship. It, yeah. was, it was really hard to sink, Yeah, um, which – you kind of have to take a step back and look at it and just give them so much respect for that, that no matter what was thrown at them, they, you know, never emotional. The guys, you know, were so professional mm. in what they did as a job. And, you know, in the moment you could see it's like, those guys are a bunch of dicks. They're a bunch <laughs> of assholes. Like what's wrong with them? Right. And it's like, no, no, no. It was like six dudes getting paid to do a job mm-hmm. to represent this thing. Right. And, they're just doing their job. Un- unbeknownst to us, it's yeah. like they're a brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Those are six guys that will die for each other, mm-hmm. that enjoy hanging out with each other, that love going to get dinner. You know, mm-hmm. they they have formed a group that they don't need anybody else involved. They don't care you from Michigan about a good job. It's not that they don't are snubbing you. It's like that good job, they want to go talk to their teammates. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've been there. I've been part of that, that group, and I've been on the outside. And it's like, okay, like looking back is – that's what they were doing, and that's 100% fine. But it's, and again, it's only in hindsight mm-hmm. that that was, you know, their mentality. But in races is like Jake rode you hard. You know, Hilton rode you hard when he was fit. But guys like Hedge, Brad, Carl Menzies is, you know, they were never overly aggressive. They had to go 1% further than you, you know, to keep – just to- to prove the point. Keep, keep things in control of right. the, the job at hand. And so many guys took that as such a negative – because they'd never been to that point. They were mm-hmm. just strictly amateurs, right? And they were just so frustrated that they had this group of guys that were so dialed and skilled to do whatever they wanted. And because they wouldn't give you a high five after the race, then all of a sudden it's like, they're bullies, they're assholes. And it's mm. like, no, oh, man, like you'll just never get it, unfortunately, because, you know, those teams don't exist for you to be a part of, or you're not good enough to get on a team that exists to be a part of. And yeah. It's it's not a dig at you. It's just that's the way it is. That's sport. Like you're just simply not good enough. Mm. And nobody's trying to like belittle you for not being good enough. It's just the way it's competition. the world shaped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's and competition. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well said. That's interesting. 
definitely makes me think of some of my early lessons in track racing and the guys who I kind of thought were dicks, but well, that's a different story. We'll, <laughs> we'll unpack that in the six day section, but, but I mean, that's, I mean, that transitions into the six days of like us being strong enough to, to be there, but no knowledge yes. to get played with, exploited, used. Yeah. And as soon as we picked up the knowledge, we began getting treated differently because they're like, oh, they're picking up on the game. They're figuring it out. They, oh, they're knowing the rules. Like right. they're playing by the rules and now they're being successful. Therefore, we can't be mad. Right. You know, we can be annoyed, but we can't be mad. Yep. And so we went through that same transitions as two, two honks going to Europe, you know, racing this unknown format to us. Yeah. You know, and so that's just what a lot of guys in the crit scene do, you know, and we, mm. we did that. We went back to the bottom floor, you know, and worked our way up, you know, to be back in the Climb border. Um, mm. After a few years of, yeah, we may not be the strongest guys, but we know the rules. We know how to play the game. And when everything goes right, we can be a contender. There's a chance for success. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I think some of the old hat guys like Bruno Risi enjoyed watching our transformation, mm-hmm. you know, is because A, we were never a threat <laughs> to him and what he was doing. Um, Bruno Risi, he was, he the was flying like, mullet. Yeah. But he was also like, um, like a low key, like light mentor, right? Like he was definitely mm-hmm. a guiding hand um, for us to say either wave the finger or, you know, nod in appreciation. And so, you know, the, I think that really helped um, us, you know, through that transition. And yeah. you really like laid the foundation for that to have that simply by your track record. Mm. Uh, no pun intended, racing the track, um, you know, with your Olympics and attendance and world performance and all that stuff, you were a known entity. Um, to a degree, but, you know, I mean, when when we when I first did Copenhagen, the first year I had an opportunity to race Copenhagen was through Wim Janssen, who's a he was a promoter in Europe, and he was connected with Dale Hughes, who's an American who builds velodromes. Right? He built the velodrome in Michigan. He's built several others. Built yep. one in Texas in Frisco. Yep. And other velodromes throughout the world. So I've known Dale for years, on and off through I don't know, just track, I suppose. And at one point he. I don't remember if he emailed me or called me or what, but he said, I've got some opportunities. Maybe I, I probably reached out to him, but in any case, managed to go race Copenhagen with an Italian rider, Angelo Ciccone. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my first intro into the world of six days. And Gary Beckett was my swan year. He's an, an English chap. And Gary would say, you know, it doesn't really matter if you've got these results at the world level. It doesn't matter if you've won World Cups or you've won medals at Worlds. It doesn't mean you're going to fit in automatically into this six-day world. It's a different universe. There are different rules here. There's a hierarchy, and you've got to you've got to respect that hierarchy. And if you refuse to, then you're going to get the beat down. And he he would tell me stories all the time about how Chris Newton went over, and Chris is one of the most successful British World Cup racers of his era by a good margin. Won the World Cup points race overall a couple times, and and has a couple world titles to his name and several medals. And he went to the sixes and just fit in like a, it was a square peg and round hole. Like, <laughs> and apparently the guys would, would flick him on the thighs and like smack him and stuff during races because he kept doing, I don't know what exactly that wasn't gelling with them. I don't know if he just was doing things at the wrong moment or refused to recognize the rules, but like to paint the picture, six days are, they're sort of a blend of sporting performance, but they're also, a performance for yeah. a crowd. So there's kind of a Cirque du Soleil almost element to it. Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah. 
And that makes it quite unique. Whereas a normal race, a criterium or road race is just guys, gals out there racing, women racing as hard as they can. First ride across the line wins. And the performance is in that, whatever that outcome is. And there's still rules, right? Like of course. It's, just, it's of like course. There, there's still rules that people abide by and they don't know that they're abiding by them. Definitely. And so it's funny when you hear non-experienced people go, six days are this, six days are that. And you're just like, what What do you think you do on a weekend, bro? Like it's the right. same thing. You just don't realize who's the boss. Like it's a big enough field that you don't realize who's calling the shots. Mm. You are just a fish in this school and you don't realize that there's somebody actually leading this thing. Right. You know, and a chef, a chef that, yeah. you know, is the chief at the six days. And so yeah. it's a much smaller thing to watch. And if you have some experience, it can be easy to see how a six day operates. But when there's 120 guys out there right, and there's eight teams, there's a rhythm to it, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, if all eight teams are represented at a break, the race stops. Right. And you play along with that, then you're, you're abiding by the rules. It's fixed. It's a fixed situation. Mm-hmm. And you sit there and you take it if you're not on one of those eight teams. Mm-hmm. It's the same way in a six day that there's rules and you play by them and you try to understand them and you learn to break them. They're just more explicitly explained. Yeah. Or maybe they were for us from Gary <laughs> or from Jorg or from Illy. Yeah. I mean, from <clears> guys <throat> that liked us and wanted to see us succeed. Yeah. They wrote it in a very kindergarten way so we could understand them so we could have fun and eventually be successful with it. You know, because they'd probably seen numbers of people come in and didn't listen, didn't Screw understand. Yeah. And, you know, Jorg is pr- protecting his investment, right? He's like, those are two guys who will pay me yes. eight times a year to do a job. Gary's like, those guys will pay me yeah. eight times a year to do a job. I'm mm-hmm. going to protect that because that's known income. Right. So, of course, I'm going to educate these guys so I can get my, my income mm-hmm. <laughs> for yeah. the year. So, I think that's mildly, you know, kind of how they looked at it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a good point for the, for also like they wanted to see an American pair there, you know, it'd been a long time since an American pair showed up. Um, you know, I think we had a lot of things working in our favor and, you know, kind of your personality led to our success of like, dude, these are the rules. Don't mess it up. <laughs> you know, and I was young enough to be like, okay, that's fine with me. Like, yeah. cause when I started bike racing, six days is what I wanted to do mm. for Fareed introduced that thought, that environment to Plan- me he when planted I first started and he planted that seed. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. It wasn't go chase the tour. It wasn't go chase Europe on the road. It was like, I want to go do Ghent. I want to mm-hmm. go do these pro six days. That's what I care about. And so to be there was like, oh my God, this is like the dream come true. If I do, if I, if I do those things, I'll get kicked out. Okay, I won't do those things because I want to be here. This is like, this is what I worked to become a professional at. Yeah. And so that worked to our favor. And then we kind of kept our blinders on so long and so tight. It started to hurt us. And then we started getting like thumped in the ear. Be like, guys, wake up. Yeah. Like you can up. do more. Like yeah. you don't, you now understand the game. Yes. Now start playing it. Start playing it. And so mm. that was like, really? Like we're. We're not going to get We can punished. do this? Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. we started putting putting our feet forward and becoming successful and seeing that we had the respect of the Peloton that if we did things the right way at the right times, we got, you know, benefit for it, you yep. know, and, and we got rewarded for respect it. Respect so, for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it definitely, you know, bit us in the ass in Copenhagen the one year while we we're like, okay, this is the hierarchy. These are the rules. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is what we've been told. And so- this is the game we're playing and we have to abide by it. 
yeah. come to find out that we shouldn't have that one day in that one instance. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you're talking about the handicap. Yeah. The handicap yeah. race where, yeah. so I we got to paint, don't know we gotta paint the picture for this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, probably one of the most infamous races in track racing hundred K on the fifth night. Um, everybody's super tired. Yeah. Everybody's, and it's like one of the last sixes of the season, which, you know, we were at the end of this era of 10, 12, six days, a winner that are back to back to back to back. And so, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's kind of on their last leg at Copenhagen. And so night five, they basically flip the GC upside down and, you know, last team gets eight zero. laps or gets zero. And then, zero laps, you know, right. the teams at the top of the class are eight laps back and they have 100K to get those back. Right. Um, and... Copenhagen is kind of one of those races that if you're not at the top of the classment, you start thinking about hmm. night five handicap of like maybe maybe we do lose a couple of laps yep. here or there to place ourselves for night five for a good for a good handicap. We weren't thinking that way. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> but come night five, we were in a really good place uh, to be successful. And you know, it was one of those nights where both of our legs were were on fire, just mm-hmm. doing whatever we wanted to do, and we were making good decisions all night and. We, we got to the finale just – and I, I don't know if you remember. I went up to you and I was like, dude, I will smoke anybody. Mm-hmm. Like just I'm going to win this thing. And you're like, hell yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And so not shortly after, you know, uh, a Dutchman of a no name will, you know, went up to you and said like, hey, we win. And you then passed that information to me and I was fuming. I was so both angry. Of, both of us were. It was like <laughs> – I looked at you like he actually told me. That they're going to win. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't want to say it to you, but I knew I had to. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, anyway. yeah, we were, we were fuming and it was just like, yeah. I mean, we just, they won. We got yeah. second and. And we just rolled across the line. It yeah. was just like, oh. Yeah. It was, uh, it was kind yeah. of disappointing and. Yeah. Come to find out, we, we spoke with the chief and said, hey, this is, you know, I thought this race was wide open, no rules. And he's like, oh yeah, it is. You, sh- you should have given you the middle finger. Right. And I was just like. Know when to break the rules. Yeah, and so yeah. that was a big, you know, lesson moving forward, and especially for me racing six days with new partners with without you of like, you know, when to to play by the rules and you know when, when not to kind to. of wave the middle finger and say we're doing this. Yeah, you know, and hopefully when you make that decision, you have the legs to back it up because right, you know, you'll get respect for it. Right, they may not like it, but they're and, like, oh, but you may encounter lots of resistance. Yeah, yeah. So if you have the legs to back it up. Yeah, you can break the rules in certain occasions, and so yeah, it, it made my second part of my six day career a lot more successful with the partners I had mm. um, by learning that one so that one lesson. That's good. It was a painful <laughs> lesson, but I'm glad you were able to take it forward. Yeah, and so, so I've yeah. you know have now I do have luckily have the handicap under my belt on the re- resume. So nice. That's pretty cool. I, th- I think I'm the only American to have won the the Copenhagen handicap. Probably so. Um, I'm sure J- Jamie Carney will get wind of this and start fact checking both of us. <laughs> um, but as of now, I think I'm the only one, which is pretty rad to think about, um, yeah. in the totality of my career and, you know, all things like U S athlete cycling. It's results. a really cool thing to tuck in your pocket because it, it means something to you and I, and it means someone, something to anyone who's watched the six day or familiar with that world. But you could, you could be at the biggest criterium in the U S and the announcer could say, and Daniel Hallway won the 100K handicap on the fifth night at Copenhagen this year with, you were with Heggie. Yeah. And 99% of the riders would be like, what the hell is that? You know, yeah. they don't even know what a six day is. Yeah. So, but then Frankie Andrea comes to you and like yeah. gives you the handshake and is like, that's impressive. And nice. Those, like, I've learned to 
remember my peer group and it's not to belittle anybody, but it's mm-hmm. also to like, you know, remember like my level is, you know, pretty high. My results are pretty high and remember where I'm getting compliments from and not, you know, and it's like that one year after 2014, when I won 20 some odd races, Gord Frazier sends me a message like, dude, that is super impressive. Mm-hmm. Really proud of you. That was fun to watch. You know, that's a great example. And there's a hundred people that sent me that same message. Yeah. I was like, cool. Thanks. Like you're just being nice to be nice or mm. whatever. But when like Gord Frazier says, dude, good job. He knows that what one's it takes. Like, he knows what it takes. He knows he's been there. He's yeah. been the guy that everybody wants to beat on a race day and to come out on top again, mm-hmm. the work it takes. And it's, it's when you're in that position, the physical work is done, right? It's the mental work that has to stay on in check and mm-hmm. in focus to continue to be successful because mm-hmm. you're physically at the level, you know, there's small undulations, but to keep your head on straight, to continue to be successful is, is the hardest work. Stay focused. Yeah. And yeah. so when somebody that's gone through it, you know, can give you that compliment mm-hmm. is like, that's what's like near and dear. So, mm. you know, when we went to the six days and working with Illy and he's like, dude, you got fifth in this, this Belgian race. That's so impressive. And I'm just like, how did you oh. know that? <laughs> and you know, it's like, oh, that's a big race. Cause as an American going over, you're just like getting thrown into races with numbers on your back. And you're like, you have no idea what the importance is. You're like you're trying to survive. Right. And so when this guy who's, you know, rubbed Eddie Merckx and Eric Zabel and like just mm-hmm. every legend of the sport is giving me praise, it's like, oh man, okay, like I'm, I've done things right. Mm-hmm. And so it's having that result to have a coffee with him in the future or Ed, mm-hmm. you know, Hood or, you know, some of these guys, you know, peer group that I desired to be in, when they recognize the result, that's why it's important to me, not because, mm-hmm. you know, Chad Andrews is telling Athens you know, a bunch of drunk people at Athens that have won it, you know, it's like, yeah, right. of course it carries no weight here. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean it doesn't carry weight. It's yeah. just not in this, yeah. you know, microcosm. Okay. So very good points. Now we've got to rewind a bit though, because I do not want to assume that our audience has any idea of what the hell we're talking about. So I need you to define a little bit about a six day format. What's a chase? How does the team format work? Yeah. So you have, so normally like six days are raced on 200 meter tracks think for a six day, they put 16 teams on the track. Sud Lauren was 188 to 192 meters, yeah. <laughs> depending on who you spoke to. Yeah. Right. If the Durnies were on the track, flexing it or not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's 32 guys on the track uh, at a, at a six day. Most everybody guys paired up with like colored jerseys. It's not nations. It's like some sort of sponsored. Although there's sometimes a loose nation cor- correlation, yeah. right? Um, but so it's, it's a lap based six day format, like six days of racing. It's all based on laps and there's points involved, right. To separate placings and ties and what have you on laps. Um, but yeah, basically it's just like a tag team format, you know, and you know, the, the era of six days we did, you'd basically, you weren't allowed to warm up, right. That was taboo. It yes. was unprofessional. Um, the warm up was the intro. Yeah. And so intro. the, how they, you know, kind of built the schedule was, <laughs> They would introduce the teams in reverse order the first night as far as your jersey number and then GC order from um, next previous nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just kind of built in as the warm-up. And so we did that. 16 teams is, was about 15 minutes of you know rolling around on the blue. And then half the guys would drop off the track and then next half would do these kind of show, show sprints every five laps. There'd be a sprint for points and each point – some races had a sponsor, some didn't. But that was, again, part of the, uh, you know, warm-up process. It was like a points race, but with 
there was no it, not the a race in handshake of that we nobody was going to attack. We're all going right. to sprint, go back up to the blue, right. take your lap turn, except at two in the morning in Zurich when Reese attacks. <laughs> yeah, um, no one to break the rules. Yeah, rule number ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and if you look at it, if you just write, you know, that riding down on a piece of paper, you know, in isolation outside of the race, that's a warm up you do. Mm-hmm. You go ride around for fifteen minutes. And you do seven sprints every three minutes, and then boom, you're ready to race. Right. And so they trickled that in, and they made that an event, you know? So that's why you weren't on the rollers. We, we come to find out mm-hmm. as, as much as that stressed you out. <laughs> um, it took me a long time to get around these paradigms. Yeah. And yeah. then so then normally, like at the halfway point of the sprints, you throw your partner in, and then you'd go straight into like a 20 minute or 30 minute uh, chase. And that's basically a timed event of racing. The objective is to take laps um, on the field. Um, and then there was normally one to three sprints at the end to get some yep. points to separate the the teams on, on zero laps. Yes, um, but the key detail that it's, you're missing because <laughs> it's so obvious to you is that any chase is raced as a two-man team format. So yep. what that means is if Daniel was in the race, the, the peloton is at the bottom of the track. They're basically staying at the bottom of the track doing close to on the black line. So they're doing roughly 200 meters per lap. If I was on relief, I was riding slowly at the top of the track. And every time I was lapped by the peloton, I would drop down and Daniel and I would do a hand exchange at speed. So he would literally put one hand on the tops of his bars and throw me into the race as hard as he could. And then I would resume racing. And then when the rest of the peloton went by, Daniel would then take a right turn and go to the top of the track and recover while I raced in the peloton. So this happens about every 35 to 45 seconds for 20, 30, 40, 60 minutes, 75 minutes, 100K, 100K, whatever, (laughs) continuously. So it's about the most stochastic race pattern you can imagine. It's pretty much full gas on, almost full rest, but with an incredible amount of technical skill applied because don't forget we're on track bikes. So in case you don't know, that means we can't coast and there's no brakes. It sounds incredibly dangerous and it is, but the beauty of it is really the only way you can screw up is to ride off the track completely or hit someone else, but no one else can stop. So all you have to do is go around them, right? It's like that old movie with John Cusack, Better Off Dead. (laughs) They're standing at the top of the mountain and he goes, I need some advice here. How do I win the ski race? He goes, go that way really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. That's pretty much six day racing, except do it at 60 K an hour in a really tiny gear with one hand on the bars. And then you're good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Easy. Easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. And so then throughout the nights you had different race formats, whether that's an individual goes up and does a scratch race or an elimination race. Um, then they had the journeys, you know, you get involved with that. Um, which is definitely nerve wracking kind of the first time you get up there and like, you're like, Oh no, you're going to go out with eight other journeys and then do an exchange in the middle get off the track. And right. Like this, Wait. Does, this seems unsafe. Everybody's going like 70 K an hour. Yeah. So you had different bikes with bigger gears and a disc wheel. You always used a disc for the journey. I yeah. don't really know why. And then, <laughs> and the thing about the journey was what's a journey. A journey is like a, it's like a two stroke bastard child moped made in 1941. That's somehow still running. Is that an accurate description? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And they do all the motor pacing on any European velodrome. And they actually have journey like road races. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, or kermesses. Literally a picture of journey racing on our wall in the studio right now. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. So, and, and those, just and as, a, as a big picture perspective, like 
the Chase is also known as the Madison, and it is literally named after Madison Square Garden. This used to be a huge thing in the United States. Six-day racing originated here. Now there's really no six-day racing here, except for Portland, which I would argue doesn't count. No offense, Alpen Rose. <laughs> and then it migrated to Europe. Also, originally it was conceived as they just wanted people to ride for six days straight, and then people yeah. started dying. So then they made it they gave you a, a partner to yeah. swap in and out. And then the change was done. Old school changes used to be, you literally just grab the guy in the shorts or the Jersey and just kind of whip him into the race. And then they figured out the hand sling. So that's how it's evolved. And then it got shorter and more explosive. And then they changed event formats a little bit and started doing different formats like sprints and stuff. Yeah. And the wave, you got to tell us about the wave man. What's the wave man? Um, yeah. So I guess through our time, it's just like, I was, again, this is like a dream come true to be racing professionally at the six days. Um, and I was, just full of energy like always dancing making a fool of myself and you know all that stuff and i think everybody saw you know that energy personality and personality um and a german guy was the guy that led the wave is basically the whole peloton rides at the top of the track kind of as a final chase warm-up um and so there's i didn't know but the song that this german guy did it to was about cowboys and indians and there was a dance to it and waving arms and gestating and, you know, certain mannerisms at certain times with the song. So the whole Peloton is like riding at the top of the track and everybody's taking their hands off the bars while you're going pretty fast at the top of the velodrome. This yeah. is like a lot this of like skill. your standard, like, you know, sports game wave. Yeah, exactly. And Only there was you're also your a bike. dance to go along with this song that I yep. have no idea about. Right. And so the at one six day, this guy's wife was pregnant and he had to leave early. Um, this was Dort, right? Uh, yeah, Dirk. Um, and so he had to go, and they all pointed at me as the replacement wave man. And I was like, sure, why not? Like, And it was the most nervous I've ever been because it's like if I crashed, the whole Peloton crashes, and I look like an idiot, and we're never coming back. And so – There are lots of moments uh, like that in six days, actually. I, I get up there, and I just start like riding way too fast, start doing the wave, and I start doing all these other mannerisms at – all the wrong times to the song <laughs> and I get off the track. I was like, that was awesome. And our mechanic who's German is looking at me. He's like, do you, you know what you're doing? You're an idiot. I was like, I know. No. It's <laughs> like, did you not figure that out already? He's like, yeah, there's like Cowboys and Indians and you're like doing everything wrong. And I was like, I had no idea. <laughs> and so they played that song for like another three nights. And then the next six day, somebody, I think it was Copenhagen maybe or whatever. They just started playing born in the USA. And that happened to be my, you know, wave song for the rest of my career, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I was kind of indoctrinated into becoming the wave guy for any time nice. that I was, I was at a nice. six day. Yeah. And, but then you really got the call up when they brought out the chicken suit. Yeah. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> Copenhagen, you know, is they have interesting humor, decided to haze me. And for the kids day, they really wanted me to ride a chicken suit. Like a full body, full head to toe, everything. Yellow feathers. The hottest thing I've ever worn. <laughs> Died of heat stroke. Um, and yeah, that will live in infamy. Mm. Uh, but the kids loved it. Kids loved it. Got to do it for the kids. Flying chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I've been, since been Batman. Nice. Um, oh, and man. a stormtrooper once. Oh, I'm bummed I missed these. Yeah. So a stormtrooper. Yeah. Copenhagen lets you get wild. Yeah. So it's good. They're a good group. You shouldn't worry about that suit being hot. I'm really sure that no one's ever sweated in it before <laughs> or it's been washed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Good stuff. So, okay. I got to tell one story quickly or maybe I'll let you tell it. 
we're sitting at the table having dinner. This is probably night two or three of Dortmund. And you share a cabin with certain other riders, right? And the, the, the cabin you share is based on who has the similar soigneurs and mechanics, really soigneurs because they take care of you. So there's usually two soigneurs per cabin. And soigneurs do everything in a six-day. I mean, when I say everything, you have no idea. Like between a chase and a points race, for example, you come into the track, you roll up, and the swanee catches your bike so that you don't have to backpedal and strain your legs. Now, the way I'm going to say this makes it sound like a princess, but there's a system involved in this for very specific reasons. So meaning because when you go to stop a track bike, the only way to really stop at the very end is to apply back pressure or grab onto a solid object and use your arms. Both of those cost muscular effort and energy can make a rider sore. So the Swanee catches the bike, you hop off, you go to the, to the mini cabin on the, the infield of the velodrome and the Swanee pulls your jersey off, pulls your undershirt off, wipes you down with alcohol puts the undershirt on over you, a new puts undershirt. the new jersey on over you. Yes, a clean one. And then towels off your face and then hands you your bottle of water and your little tiny, we used to get these little bowls Rice of porridge, puddings. right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Or little biscuits or cookies or whatever to keep the energy going. So the point is when you're racing super, super hard, you're four, five, six days in and you're throttling yourself. Like I've gone so deep in some of these races you don't want to get sick. You can't sit there in your wet, sweaty clothes. And all these jerseys that are handed to you by the promoter are like 98% Lycra. So they look <laughs> cool, but they're not real good at dealing with sweat. So you always wear an undershirt. So you have to get cleaned up so that you're not sitting there in your sweaty clothes for 20 or 30 minutes between races while your partner's racing. And then they get the journeys warmed up. And then sometimes there are other events in between, like someone will sing a song, you know, like Donadio would sing a song. One of our guys, he had a great contract opportunity because he was a good bike racer and also a singer. So you'd go sing an Argentinian ballad on the piano, or they also had sprinters that would come in and do kind of like this contrasting event. So they might have a round of match sprints or a Kieran or something like that. And that gives the six day field a chance to rest early before, before our program begins, the, U, the UIV race goes, which is the young kids, right? So they get a chance to race too, and then watch us. So there's all these balanced things going on. There were also laser shows or other like comedy routines. So it really was you know, part athletic event, part show. So then the Swanier buttons up all these things. So now at the end of the night, we go to our cabin, our main cabin, which is like in the bowels of the velodrome. And we're there. And in our cabin, I believe at Dortmund, all these blend together, all the cabins and all the races, right? So, but at this moment we had Robert Bartko, who was known as the Terminator. This guy was in the <laughs> East German team pursuit squad for like his entire career. He's just exactly the way you would imagine him. Like perfect crew cut, Fake and bake tan, muscly as hell, like zero hair below his chin. No, like, <laughs> like literally laser hair removal from his Adam's apple down. Nothing. And I, I that one threw like, me. Whatever night it was, you just like elbowed me. You're like, dude, dude. You ever notice Barco has zero hair on his body? I'm like, no, what? zero. You're like zero. None. None. I was like, I'm not paying that close attention, man. <laughs> The guy weighs like a hundred kilos yeah. of muscle walking around with his tan, you know, and everybody's naked and wandering all over the place in the cabin. It's just the way it works. Right. It's like, it's truly a locker room anyway. Hard to miss is my point. So, <laughs> okay. So we're, we're at the dinner table. We're like five nights in or, or maybe two or three nights in enough to where both of us were like thoroughly in a pretty solid haze of fatigue at that point. And also like, what the fuck is going on? Like both of us were just like, 
swimming for our lives in this Peloton that was just yeah. going a million miles an hour all the time, trying not to make mistakes, trying not to die, trying not to get dropped. And, and there's, it's a little bit fraternity-ish. There's all these traditions. There are all these things you do. There are all these songs you sing and all this weird stuff that happens when you go out to dinner after the race each night. And, and one of their traditions is like a, it's like a typical drinking game tradition, right? Where when someone burps, you have to like make hang just loose sign your and put your thumb on your forehead. Yeah. So here's Daniel just like, just, man, you were just like your universe, your entire universe was your plate. Yeah. Like you were, that was it. <laughs> and I get it. I've been there so many times and somebody burps and we're all there with our thumbs. And I, I was like, you know, like 12 out of 13 people. And then they <laughs> barely made it. And then there's Daniel. You didn't even notice you were Got so, it. and Barco just walks up behind you and just thwacks you on the back of the head so hard out of the blue. It was just so unnecessary. <laughs> such a cruel lesson. Just whack. And you just, you look like you'd been sat on by hippo. You had no idea what the hell was going on. You were so confused. Beautiful learning moment. Yeah. I mean, right? like that was also the same time. Like that was when we raced like Zabel. Yes. On Milram and raced and he was in our cabin. I remember the first night walking in, Gary's like, Hey guys, give me your bags. You know, this is our table. This is where we set up. So your stuff is, you know, run through like our normal names of hanging out with. And he's like, oh yeah, Zob stuff will be right here. And I was like, Who? wait, wait, say it again. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Zob will be here. Probably won't see him that much, but he'll be for dinner and like obviously yeah. before racing. But like this is where his area is like, Whoa. holy shit, Eric Zob will, I'm yep. in the same locker room as this. Oh God. Like, oh, like definitely don't make any mistakes. And like, yeah, that third or fourth night I was tunnel vision eating food and the burp happened and I just, just got smacked and the whole room <laughs> died of laughter. Totally. It's like. What is this? And it's like make eye contact with, with with Eric, and he was just like, "Holy shit, kid, <laughs> get it together!" And I was just like, "Oh!" And I just went straight back to eating. Like it just wasn't phased because I, I was so hammered. Like, yeah, I was just so so in a hole. And it, the thing about the six days is the fatigue was. It's a different style of fatigue. You can go mess yourself up at Tour of the Gila or whatever, a hard five-day stage race. I've done Tour of Guatemala, Tour of Venezuela, Tour of New Zealand. These are all hard bike races. Your legs hurt, you're tired afterwards. But the fatigue in a six-day is different because you're pedaling so unbelievably fast for so much of the racing and the concentration level is so high. And it's, it's not... neural fatigue. Like it's... Yeah, it's like, neurological fatigue. Like your physical, like your muscles and stuff, like they get tired, but it's like normal training tired. But your yep. neuro load is beyond anything you could ever train for. Agreed. Because the, the sound, like... The music, the lights, you know, all the stimulus you get. And the stakes. Yeah, you can't I mean, can't replicate any of it. If we eat it at the beginning, at the front of the Peloton here, there are guys who, this is their season, their pro season. Like you're literally taking away tens of thousands of euros from them if they break a collarbone or break a femur, or, yeah. you know. So, Hashtag Berlin. Right. Hashtag final race. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or Munich for me, that yeah, was well, the big. Munich, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it wasn't our fault. Right. <laughs> well, hmm, you know. It was never a 100-0, but anyway, I definitely <laughs> did. I, but that whole night, I had a dark cloud over my head. I could feel it coming. Well, like the whole Peloton did because, like, everybody was, like everybody got their jerseys, and it was just like, well, this is light blue dots, and this yes. is heel dots, and this is red dots, this is orange dots. This is And the orange and red are really and close. And it's just like in the lighting, there was like eight teams that looked the I same. Did, yeah. And, yeah, know. going into that race, like whether it was that race that we, like, weren't sure like we tried so hard for like three years to get into it was like munich 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 yep. and then finally we were there and it was just like there was definitely an aura you know at least over us i don't know how much over the other guys but we went in it's like that first chap chase was happening and yeah i just remember dropped down my hand out and just like you know it's like you always find your own way of 
you know, where's where's my teammate, right? Yep. So it's like I'm always counting. It's like, okay, I got to count six helmets, and then yep. I should feel the hand. And it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, six seven. Whoa, no Colby, helmet. Wait, Colby, what are you doing? Yeah, like just in my head. And then I just felt like I got run over by a Mack truck. That was it. And it was like the yeah. second biggest German on the track. Yes, just ran into me, just nuked me. I was like, what was that? And then yep. you guys came around again. There was bikes all over the. There was track still a bike and, in their way. So yeah. this is how fast things happen. You're going 55, 60 k an hour. We were flat out in that chase. Yeah. And this is this is something that commonly happens in cycling. You especially in Madison, when you're learning to do a Madison, your teammate will drop down to do a change and you just won't even see them. You're just on another planet. You're just so fixated on the wheel or watching all the other things that are happening or going over the other changes that are happening in front of you, analyzing the colors, the noise, everything that you just miss him. And it, you know, as you get better and better, you do this less and less. Well, this is one of the moments that I still had one in me. And I just completely missed Daniel. And like you didn't even try. Like you were just no, no. I wasn't. I didn't see you at all. Arrow, perfect everything. Like I did. Like there was no other thing. That, well, like your tunnel vision was mine at the dinner table. Totally. Didn't smack. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And I went right past you. But I. But some, weirdly, a part of me saw because I have this memory of you like getting hit and seeing the crash and going, "Oh, a crash happened." And that's the other thing about a six. A lot of times when there's a crash, people kind of sit up a little bit and look be, out of respect to make sure things are safe. That did not happen in this instance. It was full gas. Like yeah. this was, there were guys doing battle and we came around the next lap and the field was starting to explode. So no one could get the bikes off the track in that probably 15 seconds it took us to make a lap. Yeah. I mean, that speed on a 200, it's not very long. Yeah. And we came around and guys started parting around the bike and I saw it and went, I got to turn and I turned too hard. Yeah, I just remember watching you just like, it was about start finish line, and you just went right turn, left turn, and high sided yourself I, yeah. on the on the left bad. turn, and then yeah, just Bartko ran um, over you. The season was <laughs> over, and then we were abolished from Munich. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we were, that was not happy times. Yeah, yeah. When you make mistakes like that, it's just you don't feel good at all. No, no. But in like crazy contrasts, like we raced Bruno's retirement in Zurich. Yeah, it was like night six, and it was the most insane thing I've ever been a part of entire like cycling, like just louder than any moment yep. at Athens or anything else. It was deafening. Yeah. And we were going flat out in the last chase. And I just remember just like hearing nothing except for noise, like just crowd noise mm-hmm. and overly loud announcer. Yeah. And the next thing I know coming down the hound stretch was like four paramedics. And I'm just like, why are there paramedics on the track? And then it's like you tune into that side of the track because yep. you yep. never pay attention to that. And there's like four guys laying on the side of the track. And you're just like, like oh, when did that man. happen? When did that yeah, happen? Because it wasn't in front of me. Right. And I didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, what? Yeah. And for the next like 30 laps, it's like they're not stopping Bruno's retirement race. Right, right. To pick up three dudes off the inside of the velodrome. So they're just and like one by off. one, those guys are just getting like carted off super, you know, tight to the railing. Yeah. And you're just like, dude, like that's how crazy it is in here. Like mm-hmm. that's just how like a big crash can happen. You can't even hear it. Yep. And then you don't even see it until like this completely foreign thing coming at you mm-hmm. pulls you out of this headspace. Focused, you know? focused headspace. Because you're just watching 31 other guys do exchanges and then paying attention to your one partner. Your one partner that's yeah. that. Man. Remember, like after Dortmund, right? Dortmund, we were orange jerseys, Powerade. I remember explicitly. I'm yes. like, that's all I focus on. It's like bright orange. Colby's bright orange. That's all that matters. You know, this is my target. And then we went to the next six day 
and we were like purple and somebody else was orange and like all these things. But I was so fixated you gotta, on orange. You got to recalibrate. Week. Yeah. And like the first chase, I was like grabbing the wrong hands and not doing I was like, <laughs> oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Yeah, okay. And then it started – you learn to then just move to like shorts and like find your other cues. But Numbers. Yeah. yeah. Numbers. The and, real guys look at the yeah. numbers because there's always – there's always a jersey, two jerseys that look very similar color under the light. Yeah. Yeah. But I just remember that just like bright orange, bright orange, bright orange. Next mm. six days, like, that's not Kobe. What am I doing? What are, <laughs> who's that guy? Because he's like, he's like dropping in front of you and you're just like, ah! wow. Like, well, alarm bells are going off because you're like going to run into something. And, right. Yeah. Totally. You have so many of those moments where you have to so quickly assimilate information. Yeah. I have vivid, vivid memories of just being in the Peloton and just being like, kind of amazed it's almost like you're outside of your own body and you're watching and you're going i can't believe how fucking fast we are going yeah. we are hauling ass and when the teams are working like that it's like a perfect machine man yeah you wouldn't believe how fast you're going and this is in for me i usually use an 89 inch gear so 53 16 you were a little bit bigger usually 50 54 right yeah yeah or 50 14 sometimes yeah so touch bigger and i mean you're pedaling i had an srm on for a lot of these they're you're you've got Minutes and minutes and minutes, hours by the end of the week at 120, 125, 130 RPM, just screaming. And when guys do 10 or 12 races all winter long, they pick those small gears so that their legs aren't smoked. That's old school. Now things have changed and people put on these monster gears and they do one six day and they come in and it's it's different, right? It's it's a whole different vibe. You have – it's a mixed peloton of you have, you know, Kenny who comes from the old school, right? Kenny DeKettle. Kenny DeKettle. Belgian. And he's, you know – Knows the old school book, right? But it's a new school playbook with, you know, the promoters and stuff wanting a different format and blending the two. And then you have, like, these new old guards and a lot more, like, younger Aussie guys coming in, younger British guys that are just, like, not only do they need to prove something within the race, they need to prove something externally, Mm -hmm. right, to a selector or a team or something like that, you know, because they're trying to get a World Cup start. And they're like, well, I'm going to let the big dog eat and, you know, show people how, like, strong I am. So I got the 110 on. Yeah, it's like Jake and I went to one. It was like, oh, Jake, yeah, 92 will be fine. We'll be good. And it's like, do the first one. And it was like, we were both just revved out. And guys yeah. were just like, Wah! And you're just like, okay. All right. Different game. Let's yep. go. Like, yep. <laughs> all right, time to put on the, you know, 96, 97. And, yeah. you know, at least we could hang out with the guys, you know. Yep. Like, you know, so it's been, a yeah, watching the evolution and being part of the evolution, I guess, of the, the six days has been interesting. And, um, again, with that sitting back watching – learning before applying was, you know, uh, hedge night, Hong Kong two years ago, you know, we got second, mm-hmm. second or third there on the overall, mm-hmm. um, you know, making waves, winning stuff. And so that was pretty cool, but that would have never happened if I didn't take the step back, sit, watch, learn, you know, not get ahead of myself. Yep. Um, just because that was like the moment of time where I had to prove myself. It was definitely long-term thinking, mm-hmm. you know, and that paid off with Adrian and I being successful. Cause it's like, I've got the full rule book and I've mm-hmm. also got the rule book of how to break the rule book. Yes. So let's now apply both. <laughs> you got to learn the rule book first, yeah. then know how to break it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Daniel, I know you've got to run. I want to be respectful of your time, but I really appreciate you uh, making, making room in your schedule to come in and chat with me today and tell some good stories. We could probably go on for another half hour, but minimum. Know, I mean, we who knows? Part if, two. We got a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah. We could, we could bust two. out a part two at some yeah. point. Are these, but... are these safe to touch? Are these walls safe to touch? <laughs> <laughs> That might be in part two, or it might not. <laughs> but if you see me on a group ride and you want to ask me about it, I might tell you about it. <laughs> Depends on your tone. Yeah. <laughs> Good stories to be told. Um, Daniel, I just want to say thank you for coming in. And also, it was, real, it was an honor to get to race with you in Europe. And 
It's been really cool to watch you progress through the sport and take all these lessons that we learned the hard way and, and apply them. And I wish you all the best for next year in Tokyo. Thank you, Sensei. <laughs> Attention, Space Monkeys. Public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at cyclinginalignment.com. 